Isaac Parker was only 36 years old when he assumed the role of federal judge over the volatile U.S. Western District Court of Arkansas in 1875. And believe it or not, the former lawyer appeared to have initially bit off more than he could chew. The court he inherited was highly corrupt. His predecessor was run out of office for accepting bribes. Federal commissioners and clerks were under fire for embezzlement. And a slew of marshals and lawyers had already been axed as well for pretty much the same offenses. Not only did Judge Parker have to restore faith in a broken system, but his jurisdiction also included Indian Territory, a breeding ground of desperados, ruffians, sidewinders, dry gulchers, and ne'er-do-wells of all stripes. And despite the reputation that Parker would one day garner, when it came time to condemn his first man to death, a 19-year-old guilty of murder, the judge did so reluctantly, the weight of the decision causing him to weep. In short secession, Parker would sentence five additional men to the gallows, and these five, along with that first 19-year-old, were all hung together in a mass execution, just five months after the judge took to the bench. Less than a year later, another five would drop, and, well, I reckon over time, Judge Parker got used to it. No longer did his eyes water when he doled out that ultimate and final judgment. Through a career that lasted over 20 years, Judge Parker would try an astonishing 13,490 cases, over 9,000 of which resulted in a guilty verdict. And of those guilty, 156 men and four women were condemned to hang. Although, due to appeals, the number of those executed was only at around 80 or so. Still, that was enough of a body count to earn his honor the label of the hanging judge. And it was in hanging Judge Parker's court that young Cherokee Bill soon found himself standing. And you ain't gonna believe what happened next. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Hey, real quick, this is part two and the final installment in the series on Cherokee Bill. Check out the previous episode if you have not yet done so to learn all about Bill's younger life, his time as an outlaw, and his action-packed arrest. Link in the show notes. Now, when Cherokee Bill was processed into jail there at Fort Smith, it was like a little mini homecoming. There were already plenty of inmates who he knew just awaiting for him with open arms, including his old buddies Bill Cook and Henry Starr. And if that last name sounds familiar, it's due to Henry being the kind of sort of nephew of Sam and Bill Starr. And just like Cherokee, Henry was locked up on murder charges. Luckily for Bill, his mom had secured the absolute best defense attorney in Fort Smith, a guy named J. Warren Reed. And that's a J is in the initial, the letter J, period, Warren Reed. Which is how you know he was a good litigator. Anyone cocky enough to begin their name with an initial is full of just enough shit to sway a jury. Unfortunately, there ain't no fancy name that can stop a guilty verdict in Judge Isaac Parker's court. And buddy, back in them days, justice was a swift affair. Bill was indicted in early February 1895 for the murder of Ernest Melton, along with a few counts for robbery. The murder trial began at noon on February 26, lasted till 10 p.m. that night, and the next morning, the jury returned with a guilty verdict. Goldsby initially smiled at the judge's words, but was caught up short after his mother and sister, who were in attendance, broke into sobs. Spurring Cherokee to ask him, What's the matter with you? I'm not a dead man yet, not by a long ways. A little over two weeks later, Bill officially received his sentence, also handed down by Judge Parker, and no surprise here, it was death to be carried out on the 25th of July, 1895. 
Now, this is where that fancy lawyer really began earning his keep. J. Warren Reed filed an appeal all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and he also appealed to then-President Grover Cleveland himself, with the president agreeing to review the case. As such, when July 25th rolled around, Cherokee's conviction was still under appeal, so he did receive a stay of execution. That said, he wasn't exactly just sitting around in the clink twiddling his thumbs and leaving his fate in the hands of other men. No, sir, make no mistake about it, Crawford Goldsby was still very defiant and still making moves to secure his freedom. Just a couple weeks prior to that stay of execution, the jailers there at Fort Smith located nine 45 caliber rounds in Bill's cell during a surprise inspection. They also found a fully loaded revolver stashed in a bucket of lime in one of the bathrooms. Woo! Crisis averted, right? Yeah, well, maybe. Or maybe Cherokee had him another pistol hidden there in his cell that the guards didn't find. A thirty-eight stuck between a loose stone that he had pried from the wall. Oh boy, here we go. Like I said, Bill's rendezvous with death came and went without him meeting an executioner on account of that appeal. And the following day, July 26, the scourge of the Cherokee Nation finally made his move. It seems they had them a routine there at the jail. The guards would normally let the prisoners mingle in the common corridors until lights out around 6.15 p.m. But due to the stifling summer heat, that time was postponed until 7. Now, each prisoner had their own room all to themselves, with cross-barred steel doors. When that 7 p.m. call came, they were to step inside their cells and close the door behind them. A guard at the entrance would then pull a lever that caused a long bar to drop and fasten the closed cell doors from the top. Two additional guards, only one of whom was armed, would then enter the corridor and make sure that each prisoner had fully closed their doors, at which time the guards would lock each one separately. Thing is, that long bar up top could easily be jimmied open, as it was on the night of the 26th by an unknown culprit. In other words, any inmate whose door was not yet locked by the guards could simply walk on out. As the screws made their way to the cell next to Bill's, they noticed that someone had stuffed a wad of paper into the keyhole, and this momentary distraction was all the opportunity the Cherokee needed. He shoved through his cell door, which, remember, was still unlocked, and pointed that contraband 38 at the armed jailer, a guy named Lawrence Keating. Now say what you will about Mr. Keating, but he weren't no coward. The nervy guard went for his gun, but sadly it was no use. Cherokee had the slip on him, and that was that. Bill fired several times, and Keating went down. At this point, the remaining jailer, the one who was unarmed, took off running, and Bill fired at him as well, but he missed likely due to another inmate chasing after the guard with a broke-off table leg that he was swinging like a club. The other guards heard the gunfire and came loaded for bear, pumping lead down the narrow corridor and driving Bill and the others back into their cells. In no time flat, the entire jail became so thick with gun smoke that couldn't nobody see shit, but that didn't stop either side from continuing to fire. Hell, Cherokee Bill, according to one account I found, wasn't even aiming just sticking his pistol outside that steel cage and popping off rounds towards the guards. And as crazy as this may sound, he was also letting loose with turkey gobbles every time he shot that 38 of his. Now, this is new to me, and please fact check this for yourself. Also, if you're a Cherokee, a real Cherokee, hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com and let me know how true what I'm about to say is. But supposedly Cherokee warriors would indeed employ this strange war cry during battle that resembled a mix between a turkey gobble and a coyote howl, and this cry was often used as a sign of defiance. Story goes that one guy over at Fort Smith even used this turkey gobble war cry as a legal defense during a murder trial. 
Apparently, some dude gobbled in his general direction, so he pulled out a gun and shot the man dead, saying that in his culture, such a sound was considered an immediate threat to his life. As such, he reacted accordingly. Is this true? I don't know. Like I said, I found a few sources claiming as much, and it is also mentioned in Art Burton's excellent book, Cherokee Bill, Black Cowboy, Indian Outlaw, but I would be curious in seeing some original sources. I have no doubt there were several cries sent back and forth between Bill and those guards, but some tells me that most of them weren't fit for the gentle sensibilities and virgin ears of my audience. Now, I'm not sure exactly how long this gunfight lasted. Reports state that no less than 100 shots were fired, but it did soon devolve into sort of a standoff. Bill certainly wasn't dumb enough to step outside his cell, and I guess none of them guards got paid enough to walk out in the open, so things quickly turned into a stalemate. Enter in Henry Starr. He called out to the screws and said that if they'd hold their fire, he'd go get Bill's gun. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. Remember, the two men knew each other from back in the day, but even still, it was touch and go for a moment. Cherokee told Henry that he was going to kill every damn white man in sight and that he'd kill him too if he came any closer. Starr was undeterred and pressed on, appealing to a part of Bill that even the most hardened of criminals are susceptible to, his mama. Your mother don't want you to kill no more than you already have, Bill. Why hurt her more? Believe it or not, this plea actually worked as Bill, with a bit of hesitation, did finally hand over that revolver to Henry, and thus ended the infamous jailbreak attempt of Cherokee Bill. The guards rushed in a moment later. I imagine they gave him a few swift kick to the ribs, and then they spent the rest of the night trying to dissuade the lynch mob that soon came a-calling. Now, in case you're wondering how Bill was able to hold him off with just the six rounds that he had in that 38, it is worth mentioning that the guards found an entire sack of shells there in his cell. So Cherokee was reloading the entire time and he still had plenty of ammo left once it was all said and done. Had it not been for Starr's intervention, there ain't no telling how things would have shook out. Incidentally, Henry would have his death sentence commuted for disarming Bill. By all accounts, he was a model inmate and he'd eventually be paroled in the year 1903. Not bad for a man who was sentenced to hang. Someone emailed me recently asking if I'd do an episode on Star, and I absolutely plan on it at some point. Just a really interesting character. Unlike your stereotypical inmates, Henry was said to have been an intellectual who spent his time behind bars reading classical literature, studying law, and even tutoring other prisoners. Unfortunately, he just had a very hard time staying out of trouble when he wasn't incarcerated. After his initial release, Henry would revert back to his old ways and rob a few banks in 1908, resulting in another stint in prison. And upon his release in 1913, he did it again, this time getting shot in the process. Starr survived his wounds, spent a couple more years behind bars, and in 1919 was paroled just in time to get into the movie business, starring in a silent film titled Debtor to the Law. Ah, but that life came calling once more. In February of 1921, Starr and three buddies held up a bank in Arkansas, and that's when his luck ran out. Henry was shot yet again, and this time he would succumb to his wounds four days later at the age of 47. Of course, by then, Cherokee Bill had been long gone, but in our timeline, he's still alive and kicking and more than a little upset that his flight from jail didn't work out quite as planned. Some claim that Bill regretted his actions, or at very least regretted not being able to escape, and that he refused nearly all food for several days. He also failed to accept blame for Keating's death, saying that with all the bullets flying back and forth, it could have been anyone who killed the jailer. By the way, it still does remain a mystery as to who snuck those guns into the jail. 
But a good guess would be Lou Shelley, the wife of outlaw Bill Shelley. Bill and his brother John were arrested in the same week as Cherokee Bill by former topic of the Wild West extravaganza, Frank Canton. And it's said that Lou snuck the weapons in inside her shawl. She, along with the Shelley brothers, would be indicted, but nothing ever came of it. Cherokee Bill himself would later confess that it was a trustee who brought the guns in, but that was never proven either. Now remember, Bill had already received a death sentence for the murder of Ernest Melton, but since that was still under appeal, they had to try him all over again for the killing of Lawrence Keating. He was found guilty, sure as shit, and he was once more sentenced to hang. At the trial, Judge Parker addressed Bill by saying the following, Cherokee Bill, you revel in the destruction of human life. The many murders you have committed and their reckless and wanton character show you to be a human monster. You most wantonly and wickedly stole the life of a brave and true man. You most wickedly slew him in your mad attempt to evade punishment justly for your murders. Keating was a minister of peace. You were and are a minister of wickedness, disorder, crime, and murder. You have had a fair trial, notwithstanding the howls and shrieks to the contrary. There is no doubt of your guilt of a most wicked, foul, and unprovoked murder, shocking to every good man and woman in the land. I once before sentenced you to death for a horrible and wicked murder. I then appealed to your conscience by reminding you of your duty to God and to your own soul. The appeal reached not into your conscience, for you answered it by committing another most foul and dastardly murder. I shall therefore say nothing to you on that line here and now. You will now listen to the sentence of the law, which is that you, Crawford Goldsby, be hanged by the neck until you are dead. May the God whose laws you have broken have mercy on your soul. End of quote. Despite these strong words, Bill was granted yet another stay of execution due to yet another appeal, until finally the Supreme Court sent back word that Parker was good to go with that original execution based on the murder of Melton. That's when a third and final date of execution was set for March 17, 1896, St. Paddy's Day. For the rest of Cherokee's incarceration, he was confined to solitary and given nothing but a deck of cards to entertain himself. Reporters would come and try to catch a glimpse of the notorious inmate, but Bill would just drape a piece of cloth over the door to stop their gawking. And I guess Bill did at least somewhat heed Judge Parker's words, or at very least begin worrying about the afterlife, as he would, in early March, begin meeting with a Catholic priest. And on the morning before his execution, he was allowed to see his mother and younger brother Clarence, along with Amanda Foster, that older lady who took care of him when he was just a pup. And the day of the execution was a circus, to say the least. A month prior, the U.S. Attorney General sent word that the hanging was to be kept a private affair. The press was still allowed in, as was Bill's family, but any onlookers were barred. Of course, this didn't stop folks from crowding all around the gate, climbing up on top of walls and rooftops. Hell, one building even collapsed to had so many people on top of it. And a few enterprising homeowners began renting out window space for the morbidly curious onlookers. But still, the show went on. Per reports, Bill woke that morning at 6 a.m. in a cheerful mood, singing and whistling. His mother cooked him a light breakfast, which was brought to him at around 8 a.m. At 9.20, she and Auntie Amanda joined Bill in his cell, followed by the priest, and out of respect, the other prisoners remained silent as Cherokee readied himself. At 11 a.m., it was announced that the execution was being postponed until 2 o'clock that afternoon, as Bill's sister Georgia was on her way, and I reckon they wanted to give her the opportunity to say goodbye before, well, you know. 
Finally, the time came, and Bill was marched to the gallows, a guard on each side, followed by the priest and various news reporters. As Bill approached the scaffold, he was heard to comment, Well, this is about as good a day as any to die. And upon spying his mama in the audience, he greeted her, saying, Mother, you ought not to have come here. To which she replied, I can go whenever you go. The death sentence was read, and when Bill was asked whether or not he had anything to say, he replied, No, sir and then added that maybe the priest wanted to say a prayer. Benediction was offered as Bill stepped forward onto the trap door, his arms and legs bound behind him, and a noose placed around his neck. Moments later, at approximately 2.15, the trap was sprung and his body fell, the noose doing its job and breaking the young man's neck nearly instantly. Just 37 days into his 20th year, He remained hanging for around 12 to 13 minutes before being declared dead and placed in a coffin, which in turn was then loaded onto a train bound for Fort Gibson. Cherokee Bill was dead, and it was time to bury Crawford Goldsby. Now that's one reporter's account of how it all went down. Another, from the Muscogee Phoenix, pretty much relays the same information, only when Bill is asked if he had anything to say instead of no sir, he replies no, I came here to die, not make a speech or at least some version of that. Another goes that he said, I came here not to talk, but to die, proceed with the killing. What his last words truly were, nobody can say for sure. A few days later, Crawford was laid to rest in the Cherokee National Cemetery at Fort Gibson, now known as the Citizens Cemetery, not far from where his old pards, Jim French and the Verdigris Kid, also were buried. French had been killed on February 6, 1895, while attempting to rob a store in Catoosa, and a month later, the Verdigris kid met the same fate over in the town of Braggs, also attempting to rob a store. He was 19 years old. And sadly, Crawford was not the last of the Goldsby clan to run afoul of the law. His younger brother Clarence never forgot about Ike Rogers' betrayal, and the pair finally met up one day nearly a year after Bill's execution. Now, it's worth noting that Clarence was a quiet kid, well-mannered, so he wasn't just going around hunting up trouble like his brother. And Ike, who, by the way, had received $1,200 for capturing Cherokee Bill, wasn't shy when it came to bragging. That said, there are many indications that Ike was in fear of his life. I guess he was expecting someone to try to avenge Bill's death, so in his defense, he was a little on edge. As Clarence confronted him on the streets of Hayden, over in the Cherokee Nation, Rogers was quick to go on the offense, calling Clarence every vile name in the book, shoving the younger man, and even pulling his gun on him. Clarence responded by telling Rogers that if he ever set foot over at Fort Gibson, he was a dead man. Well, I reckon Ike didn't pay no mind as the very next day he did indeed arrive at Fort Gibson. He stepped off the train and began shaking hands with a few friends as Clarence approached from behind and put a bullet square in the back of Rogers' head, followed by a couple more in the former deputy's torso just to make certain. There are, of course, several versions to this story with most of them just different on the amount of times that Ike got shot. I'll defer you to a video by Nika Smith, who I mentioned in the previous episode, where she goes over the various accounts of Roger's death. Whether it was three or four or even five bullets, the end result was the same. Ike Rogers was deader in hell, and Clarence Goldsby, just like his brother before him, was now a wanted killer. Kind of. I mean, yeah, Clarence obviously committed a crime. There was no question as to his guilt, and there was a manhunt. But it wasn't a very thorough manhunt. The youngster skipped on out of the territory and nobody expended much effort in chasing after him. 
Clarence would never serve not one day in jail and spend the rest of his life over in St. Louis working as a porter. And it's in St. Louis where he'd pass away from pneumonia several years later in February of 1911. The big question now posed is why wasn't there more of an effort to apprehend Clarence? After all, Ike Rogers was a deputy U.S. marshal. Not at the time of his murder, mind you, but, I mean, thin blue line, right? Well, turns out there may be a bit of a conspiracy involved here. Remember, Ike was a Cherokee freedman, meaning that he was mostly black and that his people had once been slaves to the Cherokee. And he, like many other Cherokee freedmen, did not appreciate the way that they were treated by their adopted people, even after emancipation. Rogers even went on record and gave testimony before a Senate subcommittee stating as much. He was very vocal about the mistreatment, and this did not endear him to many office holders over there in the nation. What's more, either the day of or the day before his murder, the city clerk at Fort Gibson issued Clarence Gold to be a carry permit for his gun, the gun he used in the murder, after Clarence came to him flat out saying that he was going to kill Rogers. Maybe by giving Clarence that permit, they were kind of sort of giving the nod for him to remove a thorn in their side by the name of Ike Rogers. I don't know. That's purely speculation on my part. It is interesting, though, to me at least, that Clarence was never brought to justice. Now, Bill's sister, Georgia, was involved for a bit with an old boy by the name of Bud Trainer. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Bud is thought to be the guy who committed the murder that Ned Christie would ultimately be blamed for. Well, Bud and Georgia had them a son, Marcus, and it doesn't look like the apple fell too far from the tree. In 1916, young Marcus was locked up in Nawada for carrying a concealed weapon and unlawfully discharging it. Well, a few of his buddies came to bust him out of jail, and during the escape, Marcus got his hands on a gun and shot and killed a deputy sheriff. Less than two hours later, a posse tracked Marcus and his pals down, took him into custody, and began preparing to hang him in front of the local Methodist church. The minister intervened and pled with the mob to give the culprits their day in court, and his supplications were effective. Instead of hanging Marcus, they took him back to the jailhouse that he had just escaped from. Well, I guess not everybody was moved by the good reverend, as just a few hours later, yet another mob stormed the jail, removed Marcus, and promptly lynched him from a lamppost. He was 20 years old, the same age as his infamous uncle Cherokee Bill at the time of his death. As for Bill Cook, the once-upon-a-time leader of the Cook gang, he was transferred out of jail there at Fort Smith before Cherokee's execution, and he would die in prison in Detroit, if I'm not mistaken, in the year 1900. Old Skeeter Baldwin and Buck Snyder would also be sentenced to decades of prison, I believe in both Detroit and Albany, of all places, and I was unable to determine if either of these guys made it out or if they just died in prison. If you've got any special insight, please email me and let me know. Josh at WildWestExtra.com Finally, let's talk about the mystery surrounding the number 13 when it comes to Crawford Goldsby, a.k.a. Cherokee Bill. A $1,300 reward was offered for Bill's capture after killing Ernest Melton. His first death sentence was pronounced on April 13th. He killed Larry Keating on July 26th, two times 13. The trial lasted for 13 hours. There were 13 witnesses for the prosecutors. The jury took 13 minutes to find him guilty, and he fell through the trap of the gallows at 2.13. By some accounts, he hung for 13 minutes before he was placed in that coffin, and there are those who claim that he killed 13 men. Now, I don't put much weight in any of this. Actually, I put zero weight into it. I think numerology, or whatever it's called, is absolutely 100% a scam. But it did get me to thinking about that Danzig song. 
13, specifically the version covered by the late great Johnny Cash. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's a dark tune about a man born into misery and destined to go bad. Can't help but wonder what Bill would have thought if he ever had the opportunity to hear it. I'd be curious to know if he related to it or not. I also made sure to add it to the Wild West Extravaganza Spotify playlist. I have not forgotten about that. It's still a work in progress, but I will send a link out next week to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter. So if you want to hear the playlist, you got to subscribe to the newsletter. Don't worry, it's free. Link in the show notes or head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that tab up top that says newsletter. How accurate was the movie The Harder They Fall? By the way, if you haven't seen The Harder They Fall, it's a newer Western available on Netflix that centers around the famous black cowboy Nat Love attempted to avenge the death of his parents at the hands of Rufus Buck and his gang at Desperados. And if you know anything about the real Nat Love, you know that his parents were definitely not killed by Rufus Buck. As such, none of the other depictions of real-life historical characters in The Harder They Fall were accurate either. The movie features pretty much every notable African-American Old West figure that you can imagine. Jim Beckwith, Bass Reeves, Stagecoach Mary, Bill Pickett, and yeah, even our very own Cherokee Bill. It's not meant to be an accurate movie, obviously, or even educational. It's purely entertainment for entertainment's sake. And as far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished. It's a fun movie. Accurate? Hell no. Fun? Yeah, I think so. By the way, spoiler alert. Now, Bill is portrayed by the talented Lakeith Stanfield and shown to be a member of Rufus Buck's gang. He attempts to shoot Nat Love in the back, but Jim Beckworth intervenes and the two square up for a little stand-in-the-street-at-high-noon quick-draw action. Cherokee Bill, being the damn rascal he is, cheats and draws early and kills Beckworth. This causes a full-scale battle to break out with Cherokee Bill and most of the bad guys getting killed by Nat Love, Bill Pickett, and Bass Reeves. Absolutely none of that is true to real life. Jim Beckwith was dead and buried several years before Cherokee Bill was even born, and had he still been alive at the time of Bill's execution would have been damn near 100 years old. Stagecoach Mary was up in Montana. I don't think she ever stepped foot in Oklahoma. And let's face it, that tough broad could have handled them all on her own. Bass Reeves, however, certainly was a deputy U.S. Marshal, and he did go into Indian Territory and hunt down bad guys for Judge Parker. He possibly even rode with Ike Rogers on occasion. Or should I say Ike rode with him. But as far as I know, Bass was never on Bill's trail. Truth be told, I think when Cherokee was active, Reeves was temporarily working out of the district court down in Paris, Texas. Anyway, yeah, it's a fun movie. But no, the portrayal of Cherokee Bill is nothing like he was in real life. Don't let that stop you from giving it a watch, though. It's definitely worth it if you're looking for a little bit of mindless entertainment. And I think that's about all I've got on Cherokee Bill. You will more than likely not hear from me next Wednesday, possibly not even the Wednesday after that. I think I've mentioned this before, but putting out an episode every single week is damn near impossible. At least operating as a one-man wolf pack like I am. I'm surprised I was able to do it this long. In the future, there may be a week here or there when there's no new content, and that's how it's going to be next week. That said, I think I have found a few substitutes to help tide you over. But that's going to have to be a surprise. And just to let you know what I'm working on for the immediate future, when I come back, we're going to jump right into the series on Pat Garrett. And following that, and in light of Cormac McCarthy's recent passing, I think it's time to give a proper look at the Glanton gang of Blood Meridian fame. 
Yes, they were real, including the judge. Soapy Smith is coming up soon as well, and so is Blackjack Ketchum. I know at least one listener will be very happy to hear about that. Might even toss in an episode on Harry Tracy while I'm at it. Also, in between these full episodes and series, you can expect a few more little short stories. Thanks as always for listening. Big shout out to everybody who's been supporting the Wild West extravaganza via Buy Me a Coffee. Listener Mike H. was very generous a few days ago with 50 coffees. So thank you, Mike. And thank all of you, no matter what level of support. It really just means the world to know that you're listening. Link in the show notes for Buy Me a Coffee, or you can just go there directly at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. Feel free to head on over to wildwestextra.com, hit that contact button, let me know what's on your mind. And all right, that's about all I got. Do me a favor, try not to start any prison riots this week. Don't hold on to no grudges, and should it be your misfortune to find yourself in the hands of a vigilante mob, here's hoping it's in front of a Methodist church. Adios. Proceed with the killing.